We know we can influence the present moment by the things we do, the things we feel, the things we say. We also know that we can, to some degree, influence the future, and we've spoken about the limitations of that influence. But can we also influence the past? Is there anything we can do about things that have already happened? And to understand this uh, piece today on Duff, uh, Yud Bet HaMadal of 12a in, in Yuma, uh, it's necessary to let go of your uh, way of thinking about time and space uh, and to allow yourself to embrace a very different way of thinking of, of time and space, uh, a little bit Kabbalistic, a little bit almost quantum mechanics from the little I understand of it, uh, but, but just a, a very different way of thinking about these ideas. Um, and it starts with the Gemara that we have, uh, where the Gemara explains, what part of, of the Temple Mount was in the territory of Yehuda? Uh, and according to this Tana, according to this view in the Azarot. it was the whole Temple Mount itself, including the office, offices and buildings and all the squares in which people stood, that was all in Yehuda's territory. And what was in Benjamin's territory and Benjamin's territory? We know that the uh, Jerusalem was divided between these two tribes. The, the building, the structure, which included the entrance lobby, the, the Heichal in which stood the menorah, the golden <coughs> altar, the Mizbah, Hazahav, and the Shulchan, the table on which the bread was, was shown. Um, and the Beit Kodshakadoshim, the Holy of Holies, in which the Aaron uh, was. That was all in the section of uh, of Binyamin. And that's on the west side of the Temple Mount. And Binyamin's territory continued from beyond the entranceway into the building, further east, uh, right until and including the Mizbech, the large altar. Uh, but there was a strip of territory that protruded from Yehuda's territory into Binyamin's territory. And the Mizbech was built, the, the altar was built over that strip uh, and in, including that strip. So there was a piece of the Mizbech that overlapped into Yehuda's territory. Uh, so, so if you can imagine the, the Mizbeach, um, the western piece of the Mizbeach, one amah, one cubit of the, sorry, the eastern piece of the Mizbeach, one cubit of the eastern piece was in Yehuda's territory. Um, and, and so it, it's for that reason that the eastern section of the Mizbeach and the southeastern corner of the Mizbeach doesn't have a yesod. It doesn't have that ledge at the bottom on which the blood was was uh, sprinkled or poured, um, because that sprinkling and pouring didn't take place on the eastern side, and it didn't play, take place on the southeastern side, because that was in Yehuda's territory. And the Maharsha explains, similar to an idea that we had in a recent parsha shiur, that the qualities of of the kuhuna and the qualities of malchut. The, the priestly qualities and the, and the royal qualities are very, very different. Uh, the royal qualities are, are very exterior. The king is involved with external matters, with dealing with people and institutions and treaties and armies and taxation. That's, that's his area of operation. The Kohen, the sons of Aaron, are very interior-focused. 
They really deal with the soul of the nation and with their own souls and are not involved in the politics and the business of the of the world. They didn't have farms and territory in, in order to be involved in that way. Their focus was an interior focus. And the Masha explains, therefore, that you couldn't pour blood, which is part of the atonement. That was very much of the interior aspect. The blood is the interior part of the animal. And the pouring of the blood onto the Mizbah was uh, dealing with, with man's interior feelings and, and being. You couldn't do that in the territory of Yehuda, which was who was the king, uh, and involved in the external things. That's too much of a contradiction. So for that reason, there wasn't a yesod, there wasn't a ledge around that area of you. Of, of Yehud, in Yehuda's territory, because that Mizbeah in that part was not used for that particular purpose of, of pouring the blood. Now, Gomorrah goes on to say, uh, well, just before that, this idea of Yehuda's peace protruding into Binyamin's peace, the Maharal in Zvachim, we have the same piece of Gomorrah in Zvachim, Dafnun Gimel Amid Beis, and there the Maharal explains it very, very beautifully and somewhat metaphorically. If you think of the world as a sphere, which it is, and you think that you're holding the sphere in such a way that Eretz Israel is at the top, uh, in, in particular the Temple Mount is right at the top of that sphere, the highest point of that sphere, and then you imagine a band wrapped around the sphere, around the, the diameter of, of the sphere, uh, and that band represents the 12 tribes of Israel. Starting with Yehuda, who although he was chronologically not the oldest, but he becomes the king and the leader. So Yehuda is the initiation, the beginning of that band, and Binyamin is the last one of the band. The band starts at Yerushalayim and goes around the sphere of the, of the earth and comes back to Yerushalayim so that Binyamin and Yehuda meet at the Beit HaMikdash again. The two ends of the band, the beginning and its end, meet in the Beit HaMikdash. And to strengthen their coming together, to, to strengthen that merging of Yehuda and Binyamin, um, it, it's a little bit like a, like a tongue and groove joint that you use in carpentry. There's a protrusion from the one into the other so that, that that joint is held strongly. And so Yehuda protrudes into Binyamin, so that connection is a, is a strong connection, is how the Maharal describes it. But then the Gemara goes on to say that, Binyamin the righteous one, used to be frustrated, aggravated, pained by the fact that the Mizbeach was not entirely in his territory and that a piece of Yehuda protruded. It wasn't an issue of jealousy against Yehuda. It was just he wanted to own the atonement process. He wanted to own the Mizbeach, to be responsible for the atonement of the Jewish people. Uh, and here Yehuda was in, in, intruding into that area, and it bothered him, and he wanted to take it back. He always wanted it back. Shnei Maran, the Gemara brings the Posuk in uh, Ha'azinu, Chofef alav kol hayom, and Chofef is described as, as meaning he scratched his head all day about it. He was disturbed, he was perturbed about this all day, all the time. And as a result of that, Lefichach zacha binyamin hatzadik v'naseh ushpizchan legvora, and therefore binyamin hatzadik, the righteous binyamin, became, was merited, he was rewarded with being the lodging place of Hashem. Shenemar, as that verse continues to say, and the Shekhinah from Shekhin will dwell between his shoulders, uh, meaning in his territory. 
as as a result of him being being upset. And the Marsha asks the obvious question, uh, which is, if Binyamin saw this, is now going back long before the Beit HaMikdash was, was built, Binyamin could foresee, in a vision, in a prophetic vision, he could foresee that the Heichal would be in his territory all the way to the Mizbeach, but that the eastern piece of the Mizbeach would be in Yehuda's territory. So he saw the design and layout of the Beis HaMikdash and how it was um, divided between his territory and Yehuda's territory. And that's why he was upset about it. And if he, says, says the Mashasa, if he, centuries before the building of the Beis HaMikdash, could see it all, then he, already it was decided then, he knew that the Holy of Holies was in his territory, that the Shekhinah was going to reside in, in his territory. How can the Gemara say it was given to him as a reward for, for having wanted the whole of the Mizbech to be in his territory so that he could own the process of Kapara, the process of atonement? Um, how could that have come later? The sequence doesn't make sense. Uh, the, the Ritva seems to explain that, that God had not so to say, yet decided until after Binyamin's feelings that his presence would be on the west side of the of the Temple Mount. He could have put it on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. And it's interesting that in all religious traditions, it, it seems, certainly in the, in the West, um, temples and churches faced the east. But the, in the Beis HaMikdash, although we, we, we also face the east in, very, in various parts of the world, but it's not because of the east, it's not because of the sunrise or anything else like that. We face the east because we're facing Yerushalayim. But in the holiest of all places, in the Beit HaMikdash itself, we face west because the, the, the Shekhinah is on the west side of the Harabayat, of the whole Temple Mount. And that decision that the Shekhinah should be on the west side was a function of of the emotions and feelings of Binyamin. Uh, otherwise, it could have been somewhere else on the Temple Mount. But we need to understand it a little bit more clearly. And to, to do so, and here's where I'm talking about, we need to think about time, very differently from the way we traditionally do. Because the Marsha's question only applies if we see time and imagine time sequentially, as we normally do, that one thing happens after another. So we see time, so to say, almost as a long road, a, a strip, and, and one thing happens after another along that two-dimensional road. Uh, one thing comes after the other along that two-dimensional road. But I wonder if you could think about time instead of sequentially along a lateral axis, if you could think of time as layerings, um, that each time an event happens, it's, it, there's a layering over it. So for example, um, w when we celebrate Pesach, and we celebrate it this year. It's not 3,000 years or whatever the number is after the first Pesach. If you can imagine that every Pesach is layered on top of the previous one, so we have a, a pile of Pesach. And when you're in Pesach, you're in that whole cylinder of Pesach. And you're experiencing the entire cylinder. So you're experiencing time through the ages. You're not experiencing time as a moment on a spectrum. And we, and we have that idea even when we're studying the Gemara. And we've got Rabbi Akiva comes in. And we've got Abaya and, and Rava come in. And Rav Ashi and Ravina come in. These are people who lived in completely different centuries. And then we learn the Rambam and the Rif. 
And then we go later and, and, and we learn the Rosh and the Shulchan Aruch. And then we go even later and we learn right up to the current times. Um, it, the way we learn is if they're all sitting around our table having a simultaneous debate. We're not limited by a sequence of time. We're able to, so to say, put pile time up so that there's a cylinder of time and we're able to experience time in the full cylinder. I'll give you another example of it. We know that if one does something wrong and does Teshuvah, one can rectify the past that way. Um, in, in a way where the things that one did wrong are converted into Zechuyot, uh, into, into positive events. So you can turn a negative action that you did five years ago into a positive action through the feeling of remorse and regret and pain. But to do so, as the, as the Rambam explains, you need to get back into the being of that moment. You've got to relive that moment as it was in all its intensity and replay it and rework it. And when you do that, that moment, which might have been many years ago, gets reprocessed, it gets rewired, it gets re reconstructed, uh, even retrospectively, because time isn't a point on a spectrum. Time is all happening at the same time. We, we, we have a sense of that even if you think of the clock and the fact that it's 8 o'clock in the morning and then the clock goes round and we're back at 8 o'clock and now it's evening and then we're back at 8 o'clock and it's the next morning. But the hands of the clock are on the same place each time. So think of time as a cycle that keeps on coming back and at any moment we're experiencing all of those moments throughout history uh, that, that occurred at that time. That being the case, it's a little easier to understand the fact that Binyamin foresaw that Yehuda was going to protrude into his territory. He felt disturbed by it. He felt perturbed by it. He felt worried, upset about that being. He wanted to own the whole Mizbeach. It was that that, that nourishes the decision of, of Hashem, uh, the choice of Hashem, to put his presence in Binyamin's territory. Now it's true, Binyamin sees both the cause and the outcome simultaneously. The cause is the fact that Yehuda protrudes into his own territory. That gives him a feeling. That feeling brings about the result, which is the Shekhinah is, dwells in the section of, of Binyamin. And that all happens simultaneously, so to say. And if we, if we can move away from a very sequential understanding of time, it becomes a little bit easier to perceive that things can, can be happening in one eternal moment. But what's important is not so much the sequence of time as the, as the moral causality. So when we go to the Kotel and we're aware of the fact that the Shekhinah is on the western side of the Temple Mount, and when the Temple will be rebuilt and will face the western side, we need to be conscious of that, that Hashem's presence there is nourished by the energy of an emotion that Binyamin had thousands of years ago of wanting to own the Mizbeach. Uh, even though that wasn't possible, he wasn't going to own the whole thing. But the fact that he had that ambition, that desire to take that responsibility on and be the tribe responsible for the, for the atonement of, of the Jewish people, that gave him the, the inner strength to be the case in which the Shekhinah resides, in which the Shekhinah rests. And so we need to understand the power of our emotions, not just to influence the quality of the moment we're living in, and not just to influence the quality of moments that are going to occur, 
we can actually feel emotions about things that are are going to happen. We can look forward to an event and already start feeling emotions about that event in the future before it happens, adding to the quality of that future event. But we can also do it in the past. We can look back at events and feel either pride or regret or concern, whatever the emotion is, attaching those emotions and investing those emotions, even in an event which has already happened, builds the quality of that event, uh, not only in our minds, but in, in reality as well. Um, so I hope this has given you an, an opportunity just to think very, very differently about time and space um, and, and the power of the human mind and heart to influence events eternally. In, in the past, no matter how far in the past, and in the future as well.